0: You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the Post's newsroom to life on stage. In 2009, glassblowing artist James McKelvey teamed up with friend and Twitter co-founder Jack Dorsey to create Square. Today, through his new company Invisibly, the serial entrepreneur is disrupting big tech by returning personal data back to consumers. McKelvey sits down with Washington Post Live to discuss the dangers of personal data online and how his company is making a difference. Let's listen. Welcome to Washington Post Live. I'm David Ignatius, a columnist for the Post. Today, on our continuing series, "The Path Forward," our guest is Jim McKelvey, who was the co-founder of the payments company Square, which makes those little devices that you've often used to make payments uh, through an iPhone, and more recently is the founder of a company called Invisibly, which is trying to give data uh, creators greater control. Uh, and use of of their data. Uh, uh, We're also gonna talk about Jim's new book, The Innovation Stack. Uh, Jim McKelvey, welcome to Washington Post Live.
1: Thank you, David. I'm super happy to be here.
0: Cool. Well, I want to talk uh, first about the question of of personal data that we're all generating, often without uh, even understanding what we're doing. Uh, I want you to explain to our viewers a little bit about the data that we create and the ways that others, often unknown to us, are using it, so then we we can then talk about ways we can control and maybe even monetize it.
1: So um, if you look at the things on the Internet that we consider free, they're not actually free. They are, in fact, things that we pay for uh, through our attention. So we're essentially selling our eyeballs, uh, sometimes unknowingly, but we're selling our attention uh, through these platforms that are really not um, – conducted in our best interest. So the big problem that we are trying to solve is to figure out a way for people to take control of that transaction, or at least um, control if they want to. Now I'm not you know, advocating that people you know, scrutinize everything they do online. Uh, I'd like the solution to be passive and almost invisible, but people should be at the forefront of, of making decisions about their attention because it's one of the things that we really um, you know, that makes us who we are.
0: So the, the question is what the social media companies that we use that uh, allow us to, to communicate with others, uh, share things, what do those c- companies do with the, the data that we often unwittingly are creating? How, how do they monetize it?
1: Well, basically, they build a profile of who we are, and then they sell access to that profile um, to advertisers. And that's the basic model. That's how Facebook works. That's how Google works. These are all basically advertiser paid platforms, which means that you are the product. In other words, you as an individual or sometimes as as a representative of a group are getting packaged up and sold.
0: So now we come to the question of your new company, Invisibly, and the ways in which you propose to give us greater control of that data, allow us uh, in effect, ownership of it. And, and I gather uh, are thinking about ways that we could actually monetize it, get paid for the use of it. Tell us about Invisibly's uh, basic business strategy.
1: So the basic strategy is to allow consumers to opt in or opt out to um, their uh, ad viewing. Um, and to a greater extent, to opt in and opt out uh, to the the way they consume content. And, and let me explain what this means. Uh, right now, what we have is an economic model that allows um, no consumer input except by the amount of time we spend on a thing. Okay, so if I like something, the only way I can sort of vote that up is by spending more and more time consuming that thing. Um, and that's a really inefficient way to consume. It would be as if um, food were sold by the calorie. You know. And the only way you could uh, you know, pay for a good restaurant would be to eat a ton of food. Um, so I think what, what invisibly is, and it's an experiment, like we don't know if this is gonna work, but it should work. And I've, I've worked out all the math and I'm actually on the Fed now. So I've, got, I've gotten some great economists at the Federal Reserve to sort of vet this math for me. But, but the idea is basically this, give people choice over how they choose to engage with ads and engage with content and then allow an economy to flourish. So uh, we think about, you know, I'm I'm in a big city right now. I'm talking to you from New York City today and um, we have great restaurants in New York. And the reason we have great restaurants in New York is because there's competition. And if you're a lousy restaurant, you go out of business. But if we wanted to wipe out culinary excellence in New York City, there's an easy way to do it. And that is just say, okay, um, every meal costs 10 bucks. And you'd say, oh great, I'm gonna go to New York City and eat in a great restaurant, but you wouldn't because that restaurant would go out of business. They can't afford to put food on the table for 10 bucks. Now they can afford to feed you, just not what you used to be getting. So the business model that would all of a sudden take over is let's make the cheapest food possible that is barely acceptable to the public. And all we have to do is be a little bit better than the next person, but no excellence. That, unfortunately, is the economic model that gives us content right now. So with a couple of exceptions, you're one of them. The Washington Post, actually, we got a lot to talk about the Washington Post because you're one of the organizations that asked me to do this five years ago. Um, But With the exception of five publications in the English language, Washington Post, New York Times, Wall Street Journal, Economist and the Financial Times. Most are supported by advertising. And that advertising is basically. uh, It's an economic model where the only way you can pay more is by spending more time. And that's a terrible way for me to generate uh, revenue for content.
0: So if I, if I hear you right, a part of what we, you, you're proposing to do is make more things um, uh, in, in effect uh, uh, services that, you, that, you, that, you're, that you're opting into. The, the Washington Post uh, is free only up to a point, and then you have to be a subscriber. Is that part of the idea that you're working on?
1: Yeah, I don't think it should be free at all. Um, or if, you buy, if by what you mean free, I can trade my attention for uh, access. I think that's a fair trade, but, that, but that's not free either. Okay? So I believe that good content, like good food, uh, should cost a lot of money. And I want to pay a lot of money for good things, and I want to pay less money for bad things. And that's how the economy works. The, the economy works by us you know, voting with our dollars. And that's what gives us basically everything that you see in the world has been vetted by this sort of invisible hand of capitalism that says, well, you know, we'll pay more for this and less for that. And that signal, unfortunately, doesn't exist in the world of advertised based content. In the world of advertised content, basically, you get clickbaited, you get tricked, you get... um, you, you break, they, they break the promise all the time. They basically say, here, look at this article that's going to be great. And then you realize that, no, it's not that great. But by then you've seen 20 ads and they win. So in the invisibly system, what we imagine happening is first, we're going to give people um, basically a payment. We're going to say, here, do these things, which are basically viewing ads or ad surveys, things that normally you know, Google and Facebook would be paid for, but we're just going to pay you and it's going to go into this wallet, and then from that wallet, you can spend, and you can spend it on content, or if there's enough in the wallet, I mean, I guess presumably you could spend it on other stuff, but right now, our focus is to allow you to be able to afford whatever content you want effortlessly, and so if you look at the average revenue that a a newspaper magazine makes on an article, it may be a fraction of a cent, so what we do with Invisibly is we envision a world where that fraction of a cent purchase is made by essentially an invisible agent. In essentially a, um, well, I mean, it's an agent. It's somebody who works on your behalf, who understands your preferences, and is going to make those payments for you. Because you don't want to be bothered with spending half a cent here and three cents there, and, oh, this was really good, I'll pay a nickel. You know Nobody wants to be bothered with those amounts. But the idea is that, in aggregate, those amounts are what create the content that we put in our brains.
0: And Jim, how, how will I pay invisibly to be in effect, my content manager and purchaser uh, in the ways you describe? How will I
1: work? Oh, like a classic agent. We're going to take a cut. You know, we're, I, you know, I've got a, I've got an agent now, believe it or not. <laughs> yeah. You know, he takes 20%. I think we're taking something like that. You know, it's a, it's a standard, you know, we're, there's going to be a little sort of fee. Um, but the point is, more to allow the person to exercise decisions because here's, here's what we want to do. I want to create a world where somebody who creates content, let's say, let's say you've written an article or a book. Okay. Um, so we're going to talk about my book later. Let me tell you about my book. Every time I rewrote it, it got shorter. Okay. I, I drafted the thing eight times. Every draft got shorter and shorter and shorter. Um, because that, was the value. It was taking this big pile of stuff and 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 just reducing it to its essence. But if today I'm writing an article and the article takes 10 minutes to read and I say, "Boy, if I spend another 2 hours on this, I could get the essence of this article down to something that takes 5 minutes to read." There's no incentive to do that because the advertising revenue for a 5-minute read is less than a 10-minute read. So we're encouraging the creators of the world to sort of Overstuff everything that they create.
0: We have a saying in our business, Jim. I didn't have time to write it short, and I think you're <laughs> capturing the same uh, truth that we know. I, I, we have a, a interesting question, very direct, uh, to, to our, I think our viewers interest from Laura Walker in Washington State, and I'm just gonna read it, we can put it on the screen. Is there any leverage that can move social media platforms like Facebook to stop this practice, this practice of using our data uh, in ways we don't know to make money for themselves and return decision-making to users? I think you just described one way we could do it, but uh, outside of your own business model, what what, what other ways can people think of to to get more control of the of the data that is their social media life.
1: Unfortunately, as an individual, I think there are very few options. I mean, you can opt out. I mean, I did. I've 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 never used social media. I mean, I use Twitter because my friend founded the company a little bit, but I maybe spent 30 tweets in my life. Um the, the option for an individual is very limited. Because first of all, your information is limited. Like you don't even know what they know about you. And you don't know how they're using it. And and they don't make that easy. And even when the government steps in and says, well, we're going to pass GDPR. We're going to force these platforms to share information. The way they do that is in such an obfuscated way that you really don't know. So as an individual, I'm afraid that. There isn't much choice now. Now collectively, I think we can do something. Uh, one is an alternative, which you know, ultimately, I hope uh, invisibly may create this you know sort of parallel economy where um, there's just market signals. That's that's kind of all we're hoping to do. Um, the other thing I think that's going to happen uh, is governments are at some point going to step in, and we've already seen some 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 of that happening. I believe. Uh, I mean, I believe the governor of Korea uh, just. Or South Korea just did something this week um, as far as platform access uh, for uh, Apple and uh, Google. So I think you're going to start to see government action, but as an individual, I wouldn't know what to do.
0: So I, I, I was going to ask you whether being a data hermit uh, is an, uh, an answer. It sounds like you're describing yourself as a little bit of, of one. Um,
1: I mean, information obviously, information
0: that hermit. Uh, an information, well, I hope yeah. not an information hermit, but a data-creating hermit, not not creating data that it can, be, can be monetized by others.
1: Well, look, for me personally, I found that I was getting too stressed out by using social media. I'm so naturally competitive that I think if I cared how many followers I had or anything else, um, it would just drive me nuts. And I apologize, by the way, because I know some of you, Follow me on Facebook and follow me on Twitter and stuff. And and I apologize, those are PR flacks that I have hired to sell books. And and they're not me. I, I use I use it, but I, honestly, it's it's not me. And I'm my, my followers. I'm probably gonna get a nasty email today from my PR folks. But like, I get too stressed out. I just can't handle it.
0: So I, I wanna ask you what, what may sound a, an odd uh, question, but I worry sometimes about the, the tyranny of of metrics. When we know so much about what people want, what people are clicking on, there is an enormous uh, demand signal, a pressure on us as creators of content to give people what they've already already clicked on. So we end oh up- creating what's already been created and things are driven uh, more and more towards similarity, uh, you know, more intense versions of what you've already said you like. Uh, I'm, I'm sure you're familiar with this problem. You, you write a, a little bit about, about it in your book, but I wanna draw you out on it. Um, in some ways metrics are great uh, for, for business, but there is this weird um, uh, way in which they, they crush, the the innovation the, the the writing the thing that no one would would you would thought would, would click on but ends up being something that's that's brilliant and different. How do we deal with that?
1: Yes, you'll never copy your way to brilliance. Um, and I've been in your offices. Last time I was there, you had chartbeat up. Do you still have that?
0: We 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 have all kinds of metrics. We know so much about what people like in our stories and our headlines. You know we. That's that's we know what people click on. So for those of you who haven't been in a newsroom
1: lately, what I'm talking about is a real time color graph of what people are clicking on and what's selling. And some organizations, not you guys, but some organizations, that's their only signal. The only thing they care about is not the truth. It's not the social impacts of what they're saying. It's just can I get the next click? Because that's how they're rewarded. And so that signal is, is, is very dangerous, and you're absolutely right. And I make a big point of this in my book because my book is trying to explore the areas that have not been explored before. In other words, what happens if you divide the world into two spaces and you say, okay, the space where we already know what the solutions to our problems are, and you exclude that space and say, okay, now, what about the space where we have problems that we don't know how to solve? Because those problems, you can't copy the solution. In, in, the, in the solution space, like in, the, in the world where we already know a good solution, the smartest thing is almost always to copy the solution. Maybe adapt it a little bit. But metrics, statistics, expertise, and maybe we should use the word expertise because metrics sounds a little, a little soft, but expertise does not exist for the new. If, you've do, if you're doing something that's never been done before, there are no experts to consult, and so one of the problems with statistics and, you know, the numbers and the experts, is that it leads us to do the same thing that everybody else is doing, and so you're not going to get innovative solutions. You can't get innovative solutions from that ecosystem.
0: You have a, a wonderful line in your in your book, something like. Uh copy when you can, innovate when you must. Uh, but obviously in many things in life that we do, uh, c- copying the best best practices is exactly what makes makes sense. But there the, are the other s- situations where we really do need to to innovate. I want to go back to another uh, question from one of our, our viewers, which gets at this fundamental question of, of how we uh, get better control um, uh, either through new legal arrangements, um, uh, new government uh, uh, intervention. This is from Susan Henley in California. And she asks, uh, "When t- terms of agreement that we those things that we click on without really reading them require us to conf- uh, to conform to participate, how can we really protect our privacy? In other words, how do we get out of that tiny little print that?" leads us to sign away our rights um, and, and, and take control. It's not an easy question because people are, are going to require us to, 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 to make those uh, legal agreements uh, as we enter into their platforms.
1: Yeah, so I think you have to look past the legal agreement and look at the economic system that you're playing in. And I know this sounds really kind of weird, but you're just never going to win clicking a user agreement with a company whose job is to monetize your attention in a way that is opaque to you. Because the economic incentives are misaligned. And no matter what the government says or you know how loudly you scream or like, okay, so you're going to organize a protest group and then what, uh, set up a Facebook group? The protest face. I mean, just like, what are you going to do? It's not going to work. Um, what I am trying to do with Invisibly, what I should say we were, we're trying to do because it's a, it's a big effort right now, is just build a different economic system. And if you look, you know, sort of the history of mankind sort of overturning tyrannies, there's usually sort of a basic new economic system at the at the base of it. And if you think about the system that we kind of like here, uh, capitalism, it's lousy in some ways, but it also does kind of give us good products, you know? I mean, you argue that the US healthcare system is, you know, terrible, except, well, we're the ones that came up with the vaccines. You know, so I mean, at least the best vaccines. Um, So I think we've got a pretty good shot if we can get an economy running that's a micro economy, that's an economy of fractions of a cent where you and your agent can sit there and say, well, I'll sell my attention for this and um, I won't for that. And over time, your agent learns what you're willing to do and learns when you're willing to do it and and when is really important because like right now, Right now, this is a super important second to me because, you know, I mean, you are the Washington Post, you're David, I've read your book. I mean, like I'm kind of starstruck and like this is super cool, okay? And it's also like homecoming because the Washington Post was one of the groups that asked me to build invisibly five years ago. So this is a very expensive minute to me, but I will tell you that at some point, somebody could walk through that door with an amount of money that would be so massive that I would walk out on you right here, okay? It, It would be. Big amount of money, but I can be bought. I can be bought. This afternoon, I'm sitting in my daughter's preschool waiting for her to complete something. I will have an hour of my time that you could have my full attention for a bag of potato chips. Same guy, same day, different prices for my attention. We should have that signal working, like would you want to watch ads when it's convenient to you, as opposed to when it's interrupting something that you'd rather see?
0: So I, I as a, an economist myself by training, I, I know that the price signals are wonderful, but they sometimes fail. And when uh, price signals and market systems appear to be failing, people turn to the government for regulation, and I wanna ask you what do you think the dangers of government regulation of these issues that we've been talking about, this space that we've been talking about might be? Because we are more and more calls for government to step in and regulate social media companies, uh, making people upset. What, what's your feeling about the, the dangers here?
1: Well, the dangers here are that the people who eventually form the government all are heavy users of social media. Um, I can think of one notable exception, uh, but that was a recent exception. And um, if you think about the people who are going to be writing these laws, uh, they're, I think, very open to influence by the entities that they're seeking to regulate. So I think there's a natural danger there. Now, do I believe in government regulation? Yeah, to some extent, I think we should have it um and, and not just for this i think i think government regulation is generally good and i have worked with a lot of government uh, regulators um who are really good people i mean i'm sort of working with them at the fed now these are great folks and they really do have the best interests of society at heart um but if you get away from the regulators and you put that in in then the hands of the politicians i think it's more dangerous and i think the politicians are gonna be the ones who set the general direction and the regulators implement it. And I'm worried about the politicians uh, essentially being bought.
0: Got only about five minutes left, I'm afraid. I wanna ask you two questions that are of particular interest to me and I hope to our our viewers. One is uh, about the cryptocurrencies. You're, You're in the payments business through Square and maybe additionally through Invisibly. Cryptocurrencies um, uh, pose a special challenge for you. It's sort of like if you're Visa, thinking about what what Bitcoin is going to do to your payments model. What do you think about, about cryptocurrencies? Do they worry you? Uh, do you think the government should regulate them as it does other aspects of economic uh, interaction to make sure that, that consumers are protected?
1: Yeah. So. Crypto is so new and, and it's such a broad category that I can't sort of speak conclusively on anything. But you know, generally I think um, anonymous payment is bad. Uh, and what do I mean by that? Um, and I, I got into an argument with Jim Bullard at the Fed in St. Louis because he was saying, well, actually it's very efficient economically for anonymous payments because illicit commerce, which can be thought of as valid commerce, uh, should should have a way of paying. And it, Jim's an awesome economist. You know, so we're having this sort of theory. And he might have been just messing with me. Like, I'm not really sure. But the point is, um, if you look at what happened in Sweden when they got rid of cash, which is, again, an anonymous form of payment, uh, petty crime went down. Actually went down and then it came back as, as all the petty criminals uh, started using euros. But for a while there, if you stole somebody's bike, you couldn't fence it in Sweden because... You had to use electronic traceable payments. And I think one of the issues that we've got to get around uh, with uh, the crypto world is the ability to hide bad behavior. We just don't want too much of that. And I think the governments are going to get involved, and that's probably appropriate. Uh, that said, it's a wild, wild world. And um, there's a lot of good that can be done by breaking the ties that you know have bound us to the past.
0: Uh, final uh, question, Jim, that uh, goes to the heart of your uh, success in creating Square, and it is the kind of story you tell in your in your uh, book uh, about the innovation stack, um, and that's the story of how you managed to fend off Amazon, the overwhelming retail a giant in our our economy. Just briefly tell us that story. And I'll note, obviously, for viewers, The Washington Post is owned by Jeff Bezos, who until recently was chief executive of of Amazon. Tell us how you beat Amazon.
1: Yeah, so um, Amazon attacks Square the way it attacks a lot of small companies when they're still startups. We were still a startup. This was 2014. They copied our product. They undercut our price. And then they added the Amazon brand name and um, some other stuff that we didn't have. And everyone was expecting Amazon to kill us because at the time when Amazon did this to any startup, that startup died or was bought by Amazon. So so we were looking at 100% mortality rate. Um, And we fought Amazon for about a year. Uh, Interestingly enough, we didn't do anything differently. We kept doing the same stuff we were doing. We didn't even match Amazon's price. So they had a lower price than we did, and we did not lower our price to match them. We just basically carried on. Um, and then amazingly, Amazon quit. And 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 you know in 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 um, uh, in deference to your uh, to your patron here, I will say that when Amazon gave up, they gave up in a really cool way. They actually mailed a square reader, one of those little white squares, uh, to all their soon-to-be former customers. So they 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 did this, and 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 it was fantastic. I was super happy about that. But then it, this this. This question in my head was like, why? How did we win? Like, how did this happen? Is was this do you know like this, it was a statistical impossibility? What in the world happened here? So I went on this three-year research quest where I was basically looking for other companies that had had similar experiences. And what I found was sort of amazingly that in fact it was a rare but not super rare experience, and that this process where companies, for whatever reason, were prevented from copying in their very early stages and had to invent, and I mean forced to invent, led to these companies that later dominated the world. They they became the biggest bank in the world or the biggest airplane in the world or the biggest X in the world. And I saw this pattern and I was like, oh, my God, I got to write a book. Actually, actually, I didn't I didn't have the guts to write a book. Um, I got a homework assignment from Herb Kelleher. So Herb, who was the legendary founder of Southwest Airlines, I went, I took all my data to him because I was studying Southwest and I wanted to talk to Herb to see if I was crazy. And Herb was like, he's like, how are you gonna share this with the world? And it was like it was like getting a homework assignment from your idol. <laughs> so Herb was the one that sort of pushed me to write. But um, look, it's a pattern that I thought was really interesting because at the core, what I saw was that these were normal people in extraordinary circumstances and they had this weird tool set. And the weird tool set, if employed correctly, allowed them to do things that were thought to be impossible. In, in, in our case, it was fending off Amazon.
0: So I'm gonna show a copy of the book, which is what we authors uh, always like to, to see. Uh, it's a fascinating collection of examples of success uh, through innovation, Southwest Airlines, uh, as Jim mentioned, Ikea, uh, the Bank of America, which used to be known as the Bank of Italy. Uh, people probably don't remember that. And Square itself, uh, Jim's own company. So I want to thank Jim McKelvey for being our guest today on, on Washington Post Live. Jim, thanks for, for being with us. Come back and see us. David, thank you so much for all you do to keep the world informed. And you're one of my heroes. So thank you. So. Please come back to Washington Post Live for all of our programming. If you want to see what we've got coming up, go to WashingtonPostLive.com. We'll look forward to seeing you soon. Have a great Labor Day weekend, and we'll be back with you soon.
1: Thanks for listening. To hear more interviews from this series and other Washington Post Live programs, visit us at WashingtonPostLive.com.